Research Log 34. I know that initially when I started this podcast, I said I wasn't going to cover Bigfoot because I was already convinced of his existence, or its existence. This type of research into the unexplained has a way of continually humbling you to your past opinions, though. So the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. And the Bigfoot topic is actually one where I have had a bit of humility lately. I first started to question what I thought I knew in the Boggy Creek episode with the reports of red eyes, claws, and even three-toed footprints. But it wasn't until I started binging on Bigfoot content for spooky season that I realized how prevalent those reports are. It also wasn't until this past week that it really started to click for me that we are somehow dealing with more than one species or subspecies or perhaps even hybrids of relict hominoids, not only worldwide, but even just within North America. So this episode, I want to dig in a little bit harder on these reports of claws or talons in Bigfoot. Um, Specifically, I want to see what type of subspecies or subsect of the Bigfoots that is responsible for these claw descriptions. And then I want to see what we can learn from that as far as what possibly might be causing that. So since I am pretty new to this notion of multiple species or multiple subspecies, I haven't had the time to dig through all the reports and kind of sort them into what I see as the subsects. So instead, I'm going to lean on Lauren Coleman and his field guide to Bigfoot Yeti and other mystery primates worldwide that he wrote with Patrick Hughey and lean on those subspecies or subsect divisions that they use in that book. So first we have the Neogiants. This is typically what you think of as a stereotypical Sasquatch, especially if you are looking at the Patterson-Gimlin film. So found in the American and Canadian Pacific Northwest, western parts of Central and South America, southern China, Tibet, Indochina, six to nine feet tall, very robust, no visible neck or forehead, heavy brow ridge, an hourglass shaped foot with five toes and a split ball, four to nine inches in width, and 11.75 to 20 inches in length. No difference in hair length between the head and the body. The hair is dark in the youth and lightens to red and then even gray with age. Typically nocturnal, no use of tools, no use of clothes, mostly vegetarian. Very, very vocal, but not in a language sense, more so just like whistles, screams, howls, etc. They have that sagittal crest that we see in gorillas, and it's thought to be related to Paranthropus or Australopithecus. Next up, we have the true giants. These are actually even bigger than the neo-giants. They are found in temperate forests around the world, 10 to 20 feet tall, very lanky, no visible neck, reddish brown hair, slightly longer on the head and thinner on the arms. Footprint is 10 to 21 or even more inches long and only four toes show up in the prints. So not sure if that means that they are strictly four-toed or if they have kind of a vestigial fifth toe hanging around, but it doesn't show up in the prints. Omnivorous. We do have reports from First Nations and other traditional communities of interactions between true giants and humans. We even find this in ancient myth. And it's generally believed from these myths that uh, warfare and man-eating have been associated with the true giants. Sometimes you'll see them with primitive clothing, especially in the colder climates, use of wooden clubs, stone tools, mostly nocturnal, possibly has some primitive language and perhaps related to Gigantopithecus. 
Number three, we have the marked hominids. These are found in subpolar regions, which is further north than those temperate climates of the true giants. So these are around seven feet tall and they are more human looking. The hair is piebald, generally speaking, um, and it manifests in different ways. It can be a range from mostly dark to almost completely white albino looking, um, but you do have some that have a true piebald half and half mixture. Footprint is 10 to 14 and a half inches long and three to five inches wide with five splayed toes. Body hair is longer on the head, under the arms, and in the pubic region with beard-like facial hair. So similar in the sense of humans have body hair in those areas, but this also has body hair in the other areas. It's just longer in the areas where humans have that body hair. These are mostly nocturnal. They sometimes wear skins. They do live in groups and actually um, within the traditions of the First Nations and indigenous people, they do have some interactions with the neighboring tribes, but it is generally communication via nonverbal means. There's no communication between the marked hominids and humans. They do sometimes kill dogs, um, especially bad interactions with humans. Omnivorous, but favoring large mammals more than the giants. And perhaps that's just because of a harsher climate and the need for fat. I've talked about that before a little bit. And then these are thought to be related to Homo gardarensis. So these would be true hominids versus hominoids. Then we have the Neanderthaloids. These are considered pretty rare, found in Central Asia and the Pacific Northwest, six feet tall-ish and stocky. Reddish brown body hair with a very significant beard, heavy brow ridge. Footprints are 7 to 15 inches long and 4 to 8 inches wide with a slightly outwardly angled big toe. The use of primitive weapons such as bows and arrows. Sometimes wear skins diurnal or crepuscular, which means they're active during twilight. Primitive form of language communication and then these would obviously be related to Neanderthals. Then we have the erectus hominid. These are generally misidentified as Neanderthaloids, found in Pakistan, China, Southeast Asia, and Australia. They are human-sized and proportioned, partially or fully covered in hair, with the head hair longer than the body hair. They walk around with a um, semi-erect penis. They have kind of an upturned nose. The foot is probably unremarkable as compared to a human footprint, no really distinct characteristics that make it different from a human footprint. They have a very odd sleeping position and the way that Lauren Coleman describes it, it reminds me of the duck and cover position that we used in tornado drills as a kid. These are considered the least intelligent of the true hominids, omnivorous, rarely wear clothes, only use very primitive tools, and these would obviously be related to Homo erectus. Then six, we have proto-pygmies. These are the ones that are smaller than humans. Found in tropical forests, seashores, and swamps of Southern Asia, Oceania, Africa, North, and South America. No more than five and a half feet tall and very slender. Thick black or red body hair with long mane-like head hair. Tiny feet no longer than five inches with an uneven toe line. Very good at running, swimming, and climbing trees. Omnivorous, tending towards insects, fish, fruit, leaves, berries, and small animals. Rarely wears clothes, rarely uses primitive tools, primitive form of language, um, but we have really no idea who or what they would be related to. 
And then seven, we have unknown pongid. These are a bit of a catch-all group. It includes the Florida skunk ape. They tend to be more ape-like than human-like in morphology, typically five to six feet, but even up to eight feet tall and pretty robust, short legs, long arms, small conical head. The body hair is longish, shaggy, ranges from dark to light. Feet are nine and a half to 17 and a half inches long, six and a half to 11 and a half inches wide with the big toe at almost a 90 degree angle from the other toes. It looks a bit like a foot thumb. They're mostly nocturnal, good swimmers, omnivorous, favoring insects, snails, and small animals, and perhaps related to Dryopithecus. Number eight, we have giant monkey. These are found in the temperate regions, four to six feet tall, footprint averages 12 inches long, but it has three rounded toes rather than five toes, typical of a primate. Diurnal, often live in abandoned buildings. They leap to move around. And to me, this category seems like the most likely to be something paranormal or interdimensional masquerading as a biological entity. And then the final category that Lauren Coleman has in his book is mer-beings, which he includes both the marine and freshwater flavors, if you will. I'm not going to get into that group just because it's not really relevant to our discussion of claws, but it is something I wanted to note because he notes it. I have previously discussed both claws and red eyes when I investigated the Boggy Creek monster. Generally speaking, when it comes to red eyes, in most animals, particularly nocturnal animals, this comes from a tapetum lucidum, which is a reflective layer on the back of the eye. It helps with nocturnal vision. However, that's not something that is present in any other primate. So it would be weird for Sasquatch to revert to a previous evolutionary condition. Instead, what I think for the red eyes, and this is something that I've heard Jeff Meldrum discuss, is similar to how humans, when we have a picture taken of us, especially if you have blue eyes, you can get a red eye devilish look to you. And so the idea is if that eye, similar eye to a human eye, was scaled up in size to accommodate a nine foot tall animal, would there be such significant more blood flow within the eye that it would reflect more strongly than a human eye would, possibly. It's also possible that so many of these relic hominoids are nocturnal or semi-nocturnal that they have adapted that thicker blood flow to create almost a mock tapetum lucidum to help them with their night vision more strongly than a human eye would, even though it's not a true tapetum lucidum as you would see in bears, coyotes, cats, etc. Now, I was actually pretty skeptical when it comes to the idea of claws. I was thinking that maybe fear took over and misidentified a bear or just exaggerated the claw-like nature of a nail that hadn't been groomed very well. I did mention the condition onychographosis or ram's horn nails as a possible explanation for a talon-like claw-like nail. Generally speaking, though, onychographosis in humans is a product of fungal infection, severe trauma, something like that. So I figured that it would be highly unusual or highly improbable for a creature to have onychographosis on every single digit in such a way that it made all of the digits appear very similarly. I am still doubtful of that, but I have done a little bit more research and I'm ready to talk a little bit more about this. 
So to do that, I first want to go to The Wild Man of North America. It's a book by Louis R. Italian name. It's a collection of old newspaper articles from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it's basically all of the wild men sightings from this era, from all over the country. So I read through that and it took all of the articles that discussed some sort of long fingernails, talons, claws, anything like that. And I got eight cases that I want to discuss. First case was Tulare, California, August 27th, 1873. It mentions fingernails have grown out several inches in length. Then number two, we have December 13th, 1882, Casmus Prairie, Idaho. His fingers were the shape of claws with long, sharp nails. Then we go to Paducah, Kentucky, March 24th, 1883. This is actually a creature that was caught in 1883, but had been sighted for about 10 years prior to this. His fingernails, which were over an inch long, resembled the claws of an eagle. Then we go to Tyanesta, Pennsylvania, September 12, 1894. His hands are said to resemble long, bird-like claws. Kissimmee, Florida, September 28, 1900. The fingers looked like claws. The footprint was about six inches long with a deep imprint of the ball of the foot and a claw mark showing that the nail of the big toe was an inch long at least. The other toes protruded and left imprints like sharp claws. Phoenix, Arizona, June 3rd, 1903. Upon his talon-like fingers were claws at least two inches long. Lexington, Kentucky, March 26, 1907. Its fingers and toenails were long and curved like talons. They found tracks of bare human feet with claw-like toenails. And then finally, Tacoma, Washington, September 12, 1907. His fingernails are long. Looking at these reports further, I analyzed all the different aspects of the reports and came up with a profile of sorts for the type of animal, type of creature that these people were seeing. All of these were around human-sized. We have reports of six foot, slightly over six foot, seven foot, and four foot, but half of the reports did not include a height at all. Instead, what I did notice is that all of these were presumed to be feral humans. They weren't so large or so small that they seemed impossible to be human. So I took that to mean that they were predominantly human-sized. All but one account indicates body hair. All of the accounts include very long head hair. All of the accounts that noted whether a beard was present or not indicated that there was a beard, except for one where they said the hair was so long in the head that they couldn't actually tell if there was a beard or not. And then we're about 50-50 on whether or not they were wearing clothing. All were pretty much described as having long arms. The footprints were relatively human-shaped. And again, these were always presumed to be a feral human, even though there was body hair present on all of them. The most clothing was actually on the Idaho specimen, which aligns with it being the coldest climate and also the only winter sighting. The comparison is always to bird claws and not cat claws or dog claws, which I did find interesting. The Paducah specimen is particularly interesting, though, and I want to read this article to you so that you can understand why it is so interesting. Among the passengers the other night bound for New York from the West on the day expressed was a wild man who occupied a seat in smoking car number 153. He was accompanied by James Harvey and Raymond Boyd, his captors, both of whom belong in Paducah County, Kentucky. 
They had three second-class tickets to New York, which privileges them to three seats in the smoking car of any first-class train. They were on their way to Bridgeport, Connecticut to make arrangements with P.T. Barnum to exhibit their prize in conjunction with his circus. When the Day Express arrived at the Broad Street Station at 8 o'clock, James Harvey ran down the platform into the restaurant and purchased a box of sardines and some sandwiches for the wild man's supper. His companion remained in the smoker in charge of the wild man. He was dressed in citizen's dress and wore big cloth shoes. His hair reaches nearly to his waist and falls over his shoulders, completely covering his back. The beard is long and thick, while his eyebrows are much heavier than those of an ordinary human being. There is nothing imbecile in the man's manner or actions. He cannot talk and seldom makes any sound whatever except a low howl like a leopard. His actions are as much like those of the hyena in the zoological garden as it is possible for anything in human form to be. Raymond Boyd, who seemed to have perfect control over the wild man, said his body was covered with coarse brown hair as thick as the hair on a horse's hide. The palms of the hands looked like the paws of a bear and his fingernails, which were over an inch long, resembled the claws of an eagle. He was first seen in Paducah County 13 years ago, and was known as Mum the Hermit, because whenever anyone accosted him, all he would say was Mum's the word. He lived in an old pine hut in the woods for about five years, and was seldom seen by anyone. Finally, he abandoned the hut and took up his abode in a cave under a ledge of rocks known as Lizard Rock. A little over six years ago, two or three citizens of Paducah County, while out hunting, saw him running into his cave without a stitch of clothing on him. He was seen several times after that wearing no clothing. Three years ago, it was discovered that a thick coat of hair had grown over all of his body. Boyd and Harvey built a man trap for him about three weeks ago and placed a big piece of freshly killed beef on it. They watched the trap for three days before he entered it. He was not afraid of any bird or beast of prey, but ran terrified away from any human being who approached him. It took two days to accustom the man-beast to their presence. The tinkle of a small dinner bell they used had a great influence over him. He watched the bell intently, but would not touch it. Some time ago, a farmer missed a calf and two sheep, which had strayed off. They were tracked to Mum's cave, here all trace of them was lost, and it is supposed he devoured them. In his cave, which he had occupied for the last seven or eight years, Boyd and Raymond found the skeletons of small animals and the skins of over 50 snakes. Some of the skins belonged to the most venomous species of reptiles. The floor of the cave was alive with red and green lizards, and hundreds of toads hopped about. The wild man ate the box of sardines voraciously, and the two sandwiches were, which were handed to him were greedily pulled apart. He ate the ham and threw away the bread. Whenever a train passed on the opposite track, he crouched down in the corner of the seat, terror-stricken. After the train passed, he would put his hand to his ear and listen with a look of animal cunning stealing out of his restless eyes like a panther about to pounce on his prey. Every time the engineer blew his whistle, the wild man would grab the back of the seat with both hands and hold on until the whistle ceased blowing. Boyd had a little tin music box, which he manipulated with a crank. The one tune of Empty is the Cradle was ground again and again to the great satisfaction of the ex-hermit, who sat and looked at it silently, but would not touch it. When conductor Harry Smith took out his glistening nickel-plated punch to cancel the tickets, the wild man watched the punch intently until it heard it snap. Then he got down in the corner of the seat, fairly shivering with fear, and set up a low howl supposing, evidently, that conductor Smith was about to wing him. 
Boyd and Harvey said that there was a story to the effect that the wild man had originally come from North Carolina, and that during the war he had been a sharpshooter on Bald Mountain, and that shortly after the war he had murdered a whole family of settlers in the mountain and fled. Both Boyd and Harvey appear like shrewd fellows and expect to make a fortune out of their prize. Their great anxiety and fear is that the authorities will interfere with them and claim that the man is simply a lunatic and put him in some institution. They had the snakeskins in a box in the baggage car together with some other curiosities found in the cave. Boyd said the wild man will not touch anything but fruit and meat, which he eats ravenously, and much the same as a wild beast. Cigar smoke bothered him a great deal, and he kept driving it away from him with his clawy hands. When the train arrived in Jersey City, the men took a carriage and said they were going to take the New Haven night boat from the foot of Peck Slip and avoid a daylight crowd in New York. In case they cannot make satisfactory terms with Barnum or some other prominent circus man, they intend exhibiting their prize themselves as soon as they can extensively advertise him, beginning at New York City sometime in May. In the meantime, they are going to keep him in some secluded place on Long Island. Now, I am not putting a whole bunch of stock in the backstory given to this animal, this creature, this person by James Harvey and Raymond Boyd because they're trying to sell another human and therefore it behooves them to have a good story to tell. But there are a couple really interesting points. Firstly, we have the fact that it seems to have had at least some access to language and then forgotten it over time. And then we have the fact that it seemingly grew this body hair later. It didn't originally get seen with body hair and then sometime later was seen with body hair. So I have a couple theories. One would be that we have some sort of feral human who has gone to live out in the woods as a hermit. And then we later have a Neanderthaloid or some other relic hominid who looks enough like the feral human that people have misidentified the two creatures as being one. Or what we have is a situation where mum was actually a juvenile when first seen. Body hair in humans is of two types. We have vellus body hair and androgenic body hair. And so vellus body hair is typically what you would get head to toe as a child. It's almost invisible to the naked eye. Very blonde, very light, very fine. Peach fuzz, if you will. Then what you have with the androgens that happen during puberty, that hair grows thicker, longer, darker. That becomes the body hair that we think of. Hypertrichosis is werewolf syndrome. That's where you have an excessive amount of vellus hair to where it appears like the human is covered in body hair. What my thought is, is in a relatominoid where that vellus hair is present in a juvenile, it may all turn into androgenic hair and become the body hair we think of head to toe as an adult wild man. In general, however, all of these sightings are very much of hominids that are more similar to humans than apes on the spectrum of relict hominoids that are out there. In that case, I would think that whatever diseases or conditions, syndromes would be present in humans could also be present in these hominids. That puts onychographosis back on the table as a discussion point. My thought is still that this is not onychographosis on all of the digits. One reason being that it is called ram's horn nails for a reason. It does look much more like a horn than a claw. Um, and can actually be so disfiguring that it doesn't look like a claw or a nail at all. 
The other reason I don't think it's necessarily onychocryphosis is that it's constantly described as bird claws, not cat claws or dog claws. And if you look the difference between a talon on a bird and the claw on a mammal, what you see is that the base of the nail on a mammal is much deeper, whereas the talon on a bird is very narrow all the way through, coming to that sharp point. So I think whatever damage is causing this appearance of a claw is not causing the nail to be considerably thicker, which is what you do see in onychocryphosis. So again, I don't think this is onychocryphosis. Instead, I'm wondering if this is actually microtrauma. So for example, if you were to stub your toe so bad that your nail fell off, that next nail that grew on there wouldn't necessarily look like full-on onychocryphosis, but it may be slightly thicker, just enough to where it's a little harder to cut it with the fingernail clippers. Primates in general, chimpanzees, etc., will typically bite their nails to maintain a shorter and more groomed appearance. In a relic hominoid that got a bit of a nail trauma so that it was thicker, it may be just harder to bite off so the nails become longer and then give a more claw-like appearance, similar to the weird ladies in the Guinness Book of World Records with the nails that they haven't cut in 20 years. It's also possible that they were orphaned early or not brought up in a culture that taught them how how to groom themselves in this way. That leads me to wonder if perhaps we are dealing with actual hybrids. Relic hominoids, including Sasquatch, are known-ish for taking women. We are talking about late 19th, early 20th century. If a woman was taken and, and impregnated, even if she went back to human society, it would probably be a great shame to raise that baby. And there wouldn't be any record of the baby because it would be likely given birth to at home by a midwife. You may also have a situation where these hybrid children were born and raised. And then as they started to get into puberty and they did develop that vellus hair into a full body suit of androgenic hair, that it was clear that they weren't going to be able to survive in human culture. And so they may have been kind of left to their own devices out in the woods. You end up with a hermit, feral, human looking hybrid thing. And on the census records, the wife or family can just easily say that the child died. Childhood mortality was a very real problem at the time, and record keeping was also a very real problem at the time. Now, in some of these accounts, they do speculate about, oh, we know that this person was lost during this time in this area, so maybe that they then became the wild man themselves. The things I would wonder about would be, how did they lose their language? Obviously, language learning happens at a young age, so it seems odd that an adult would then lose their language without some severe brain trauma that would then you would think would make them susceptible to death in a more primitive condition. Also, how did they happen to grow full body hair? Hypertrichosis is typically something that you have or you don't. It's not something that you develop later on. So how did they develop hypertrichosis or some sort of body hair when they didn't have that condition as a child? So I do think that there are multiple species or subspecies of relic hominoids out there. I think there are also probably were some hybrids. They may not have them now, but it's entirely possible at a time when there were significantly more people living on the edge of wilderness than we have now with our cities and whatnot. I think whenever people are talking about claws or talons on a Sasquatch, what they are probably seeing is something along the lines of a Neanderthaloid or a hybrid of some sort that is definitely more on the human end of the human to ape spectrum that we seem to see in these relic hominoids. 
But I find it really interesting that we do see these reports all over the country at this time, despite the fact that Lauren Coleman in his book says that the Neanderthaloids in North America are strictly in the Pacific Northwest. So we shouldn't technically have Neanderthaloids everywhere. And yet this is kind of what I'm seeing. So I'm interested to do a little bit more research as to what really the distribution range is for the Neanderthaloid type. And then I'd like to do some more research about the specific types and and how I think things actually shake out. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Until next time, may you never stop asking what in the Sam Hill.